1: PlushCare.com weightloss. Hello, movie truthers. Welcome to this week's episode of Truth and Movies. I'm Leila Latif. I'm Laura Vanning, And I'm Caitlin Quinlan. On the show this week, the old gang is back to battle some new dinosaurs in Jurassic World Dominion. Udo Kier confronts his mortality in Swan Song. And on Film Club, we'll be revisiting Kurosawa's tale of terminal illness, Ukuru. All coming up on Truth and Movies, a Little White Lies podcast. very excited to be joined by you both Laura and Caitlin. Um, I guess like we would we were kind of talking before the record about how Jurassic World has quite a you know it's kind of buying into something from our childhoods. Was this kind of Jurassic Park franchise something that meant a lot to you growing up?
0: Definitely for me and and my brothers. I I actually took my brother to the screening last night because of our love for the first Jurassic Park movie in particular. Um, So yeah, like massively like a childhood kind of nostalgia thing. I mean, the, the only real reason I was kind of almost excited for this film was to see Sam Neill, Laura Dern, and, and Jeff Goldblum return. Uh,
1: yeah, we do mock kind of uh, the, the, the kind of people on Reddit for having these like incredible attachments to this childhood, but that is what this film is to me. Like yeah, this was such an event blockbuster when I w- were, you know, back in the day and it took so long to come over from America and then there were the rides and everything. I wonder whether we've kind of lost something with this kind of event summer blockbuster because this doesn't seem like it's going to make the same amount of impact as like the Jurassic Park film first did.
2: Yeah, I mean, I wonder if. I mean, for me, you know, I was. A, I, I think this. The yeah, the original film came out the year I was born, so I was a little young for it, and I was never taken to the sequels because, or the original Jurassic Park sequels because, as a child, I saw a glimpse of the original movie on video at someone else's house. And I think didn't sleep for about two weeks because of course the scene when, when six year old me walks in is the scene in the Jeep with the kids when the T-Rex first, you know, so if that's your first impression of Jurassic Park as a child, you know, it's going to put you off. And I didn't see the uh, the original until I was 17. And of course became completely obsessed, but yeah, I think the past, Oh, I don't know, decade, two decades of kind of relentless, franchise kind of revitalization um has meant that even something like this which should be you know on paper incredibly exciting actually feels a little a little tiring at this point and perhaps we can blame uh jurassic world the first jurassic world which i'd forgotten came out slightly before the force awakens but those two as a kind of the success of those two films is really um prompting this this real influx of of trying to revive any kind of half-dead or even sometimes what feels like fully-dead franchise. Um, so, yeah, at this point, it does feel a little bit tiring, doesn't it? At least, at least to me.
1: <laughs> yeah, when you look at the box office of those types of films, there just seems to be such a disconnect between, like, number of people watching them and then actual cultural impact that, like... You know, I couldn't tell you what a lot of these Jurassic World characters names were I don't really I barely really understood their jobs and I've
0: seen them all yeah I think it's really funny I was thinking about this before um the podcast and thinking about the kinds of blockbusters that came out when I was a kid and and the things that I really loved and the one that really came to mind was uh Charlie's Angels which was a reboot obviously of the of the tv show and I suddenly thought oh my gosh was you know whether the major fans of Charlie's Angels back in the day like up in arms about these movies as well like has it been a kind of, you know, terminal illness for the film industry for the last 25 years or something. Um, but I, lo- I, I love those Charlie's Angels films. You know, I think they did have this kind of cultural impact in a way, maybe, as you say, Layla, that these Jurassic World movies are not having. Um, so, yeah, it's it's really interesting to see how the kind of idea of rebooting has changed over the last uh, last few decades, for sure.
2: Yeah, it seems like rather than like a hard reboot, they everyone's now doing this kind of quote unquote legacy thing where you do bring in new characters and essentially reboot the story to a you know greater or lesser extent but it does exist within the canon of the original film so you know it really is the definition of trying to please everyone because you've got you've got new characters new monsters or you know spaceships or whatever it is but you're also bringing in that that nostalgia element to please everyone and um Yeah, sometimes it works, but I feel like mostly it doesn't.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I I think the thing that almost always crops up every time and again is by trying to tie it all back to uh, the legacy characters, you know, particularly with Star Wars is something I find quite egregious because they want to connect everything to what comes before. It means that you have this universe, this kind of giant cinematic space, which all of a sudden just shrinks down to being about 14 people. (laughs) Just like, well, this is supposed to be Star Wars. This is supposed to be something large and grand. This is supposed to be a Jurassic World why is it about these like eight guys or so mm. but um you know, we probably shouldn't give away too much of what we thought of the <laughs> Jurassic World film um so let's move on and actually get into Jurassic World Dominion four years after the destruction of Isla Nublar dinosaurs now live and hunt all over the world The Fragile balance is disrupted further by mutant locusts and mercenary velociraptors that may reshape the future. Legacy characters played by Sam Neill, Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum team up with Jurassic World alum in the fight to determine if human beings are to remain the apex predators on the planet. Right, Laura, we'll start with you. Um... So you talked a little bit about how uh, the Jurassic World fits into this kind of trend of legacy, character- legacy sequels where we're merging the old with the new. Do you think that was to some degree successfully done in this film?
2: Um, well, it's a bit difficult to answer. I suppose overall the film I think is far more entertaining than its predecessors because it has that legacy element. And I think, I mean, obviously my nostalgia and my intense love for Sam Neill and Laura Dern uh, is you know I'm very biased, but I can't be the only. I, I I just think they are better actors, more compelling characters. The story, you know, it, it does keep the two groups separate for the majority of the of the film, and kind of gets everyone together towards the end without without spoiling too much. I do think that if anything. It does high the presence of the original characters and those and those actors um does highlight even more the uh the blandness of the new characters. <laughs> they really are very bland. You know, Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard. Um, I mean, in a way the performances kind of are what they are they're they're very they're they're quite flat but the characters are so flat on the page you know I I kind of sympathize with those actors to a certain extent I don't think either of them have the kind of raw charisma of of those of those original original trio and it's interesting I was reminded that the Jeff Goldblum character in Jurassic Park Dr. Ian Malcolm was originally supposed to be killed off pretty sort of near the beginning or in the kind of that halfway through but you know he was uh, obviously stealing every scene he was in so they kept him going and it's that wouldn't happen with these new characters I don't think <laughs> you know it's hard to imagine um so I mean it's successful in the sense of overall it's more entertaining but I did find myself sitting there when we were cutting back to Chris Pratt and Bryce Dallas Howard running around, thinking, "Oh, can we get back to the others now?" You know, that's what happens, I suppose, when you split your story into two threads. You know, there, there's the threat of you are constantly wishing you were back with the other people who are a bit more fun, um, and just just inject a bit more a bit more life into the into the thing. Which is ironic, considering you know they're the legacy characters, but they are injecting much needed life into this otherwise yeah quite flat slightly sort of plastic sheen of, of the Jurassic World films um but it certainly does make the whole thing a bit more lively than uh, than the previous two Jurassic World films in my opinion
1: uh Caitlin so I suppose the the struggle is when now they're making like um, a sixth entry in this is like how do they keep the plot going how do they keep these dinosaurs wreaking havoc? like structurally as a story what did
0: you think of what this film did Well, I I think it's such a shame, really, that, you know, these films have kind of moved away from what was the kind of core uh, idea within Jurassic Park, which was, you know, that there's this interesting, slightly kind of nerdy, you know, Steven Spielberg idea about, um, you know, what happens if dinosaurs come back to, you know come back to life and genetic modification and all these kinds of like very interesting thorny like scientific problems that you know Spielberg was kind of just exploring and seeing what might happen in this very kind of fun and new and and, and inventive concept um and these movies in trying to just the Jurassic World movies in trying to you know keep reviving these dinosaurs and keep finding new ways of you know telling this story um I just think it becomes really kind of farcical like they have these villains that come in there are these you know very um, elaborate action pieces and dinosaur battles and it's all very you know kind of Godzilla versus King Kong at, you know at the end of the day like it really does pull on all of these other strands of major franchises and and completely loses what's so special or what was so special about Jurassic Park um I think yeah I, I mean I completely agree with what Laura was just saying about um how the kind of the scenes that that Chris Pratt and Bryce Ellis Howard share with Sam Neill and Laura Dern are just incredibly telling the 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 total kind of charisma vacuum of the two of them is so apparent and and uh it's it's such a yeah it's just such a shame to I, you know I was almost sad that Sam Neill and Laura Dern had actually agreed to kind of come back at the end of the day because it's it's not a film that they should have to be involved with um yeah I I just find I just find this kind of, you know, incessant need for ridiculous action and high paced editing and, you know, cut, cut, cut. And there's just no interesting storytelling going on. Um, And I think these films are just not not interesting and they're not fun as a result. I just want it to be fun. You know, I didn't. I uh, yeah I was not enjoying it
1: (laughs) yeah I mean I wanted it to be fun and I wanted it to be scary Mm. which it just completely wasn't and I I was thinking of this and thinking of the original Jurassic Park earlier and how absolutely like terrifying I mean you mentioned the scene in the jeep earlier but for me the scene in the kitchen um like truly truly like you know keeps you up at night as a child like this vision and this horribleness of of the idea of these velociraptors kind of pursuing you and you dropping a ladle, ladle or something like that and in comparison this just felt so bloodless to me like I didn't really have any feeling that anybody was in any particular danger everything the thing that drove me insane everything travels at the same speed in this film there is it is a series of chase sequences where if mm. you are a locust if you are a running person if you are a plane if you are a motorcycle you are all traveling at, i don't know 42 miles per <laughs> hour or something at all times and nobody ever makes any ground on anyone else so like the stakes are just nothing i just just found it like completely infuriating um into like i I'm wondering whether, like, you think that there was anything that it kind of did pluck from the original films that um, it did do successfully. I mean, we've got a change of dinosaurs. We've got feathers now. Did did you enjoy the
0: feathers? (laughs) There was, like, one kind of callback that um, I actually have to give credit to my brother for picking up on because I did not initially. Um, I won't spoil it, but there is a kind of callback to the first film with the character of Dodgson. And I did find... I think if there's one bit that I did find scary... It was towards the end, involving said character with um, a, a, a dinosaur that I can't remember the name of, but that is is kind of crucial in the um, in the first one in the in the first Jurassic Park film uh, with the guy who plays Newman in Seinfeld. I can't remember the actor's name, but the kind of you know the the, the very scary um, uh, dinosaur sort of uh, one who coming spits, back, um, poison. Yes, with the sort of like you know framed. Uh, I don't even yes, know what you would I'd, call I'd it. I missed her. Yeah, that was the only (laughs) bit that I thought, okay, that that definitely kind of hit on something that I found very scary as a child. Um, And I I did enjoy that sort of, because it was a small moment and it wasn't sort of hammered home that this was, you know, like a character related to the first film. But there was this sort of like subtle uh, link, which I thought was kind of, if you're going to do fan service, I'd kind of rather it be in those kinds of small doses and like maybe a little nod here and there for those who are in the know. Um that was kind of maybe the one thing that I thought, okay, maybe that was uh that was enjoyable.
1: <laughs> yeah, there was a moment where um the T-Rex moves it into kind of a circle and the light mm. is behind him and it makes the logo and I just wanted to groan audibly, but I was in I was surrounded by nice people, so I didn't want to ruin their <laughs> experience. Um Laura, what did you think of the kind of gender roles as portrayed in this film? I mean that was something that really was are not great in Jurassic World. Um, you kind of having Bryce Dallas Howard in white high heels needing to be rescued a lot. Uh,
2: God, it's become a bit of a shorthand, isn't it? I feel like it's one of the things when I talk to to, to people I know about these movies, everything everyone says uh, is, oh yeah, Bryce Dallas Howard in a high heels. Like, funnily enough. Uh, no, I mean, this is one of the things that I think is most disappointing about these new sequels is you know, I'm not the 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 original the original films were not kind of you know, I'm not saying they're feminist classics, but I think one of the things that's so endearing about the original Jurassic Park is. Our our leading our leading man and leading lady are a bit unconventional in the sense that I mean first of all they're nerds which is great I love that (laughs) they you know obviously Sam Neill and Laura Dern are both very very hot like let's not beat around the bush they are but they kind of look and feel like real people Mm -hmm. I think we believe that those are you know archaeologists paleontologists whatever out on a dig we just we just believe that they're real. So that certainly helps, you know, lending them humanity. They don't really look like movie stars. And, you know, uh, I think, you know, in the original film is essentially all about Dr. Alan Grant here, Sam Neill's character learning to kind of let go and become more nurturing and really kind of discovering a new side of himself. And, you know, I kind of hesitate to call that the kind of feminine side of himself, but in a way that's how the film portrays it and you know Dr. Ellie Sattler played by Laura Dern is is kind of very capable and very sort of very intelligent but the film doesn't make a huge thing out of harping on about how amazing she is all the time which i feel like lesser imitators are always like this is Dr lady lady and she's the most brilliant person alive and you're like okay like let's let's see it then you don't have to keep telling me um whereas you know, in Jurassic World, it was like, okay, well, they clearly want to go in a different direction with the Chris Pratt Pratt character. We're going to make him a sort of Indiana Jones-type snarky guy. And it's just, yeah, it's just infuriating. And, you know, she turns up at his cabin, I think, in the first one, and she's got that pristine white suit on and her, like, you know, I'm a career woman haircut, that kind of very sharp, severe bob. And they've obviously kind of softened her over time. And although neither of those characters really feel that transformed and... You know, as my friend Ryan very eloquently put it in these movies, uh, Chris Pratt plays man with a capital M and Bryce Dallas Howard plays woman with a capital W. And I think that really sums it up and it becomes even more obvious when they're kind of thrown in the mix with the with the older characters. It's just like half the people in this group feel like real people and half of them really, really don't. And it's just it's sad to have gone Really, quite far backwards since 1993. You know, it really is. It really is a bit, a bit depressing.
1: I also found myself longing for injuries. One of the things in the first films is that, like, you know, they're not superheroes. Like you are talking about them not being movie stars, but like Ian Malcolm gets injured. You know, Laura Dern is like has a terrible limp for most of the film, and this one people just emerge from came from like plane crashes. Oh my gosh, into pristine. ice.
0: It just. <laughs> Honestly, uh, yeah. I mean, there's a there was a particularly egregious shot for me early on when Laura Dern is introduced, and it and it was attempting to kind of call cool back to the scene, you know, the like classic moment where she kind of climbs out the top of the jeep in the first one and like looks out onto the dinosaurs. Yet in this film, you know, her shirt has to be flapping open and her bra has to be visible, and it's just one of those things where I just think, are you really doing this to Laura Dern? You know, like at this point in time when you're, you know, reliant on her star power, charisma, her, like, role from the first movie to really carry this film. I just found it, yeah, completely kind of baffling. Um, and I also really found it very irritating that all of the, kind of, the women characters had to, sort of, thank each other for this, kind of, like, motherly protection of the the, the young girl in the film, or they, sort of, like, look to one another as, like, you know, like, we know what we're doing, we're, we're in this together because we're both women. I just... It just was incredibly uh, on the nose and a very kind of, you know, transparent attempt at uh, making this a kind of like film about women and and motherhood. And it it just was very backwards, I think. Um, Yeah, I really I really found that quite irritating. Um, Also, just on a completely separate note, but all the Indiana Jones uh, nods in this film are just outrageous. (laughs) There's an entire sequence that is basically just an Indiana Jones film. Um, which I just thought was totally unnecessary, and uh, yeah, a very strange attempt at again making this film more interesting than uh, than it is.
1: It does seem strange that kind of they would have so little sense of what they had that they would want to constantly reference things that are better. Mm.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> also, like, why are they trying to make? Why are they trying to make Alan Grant's hat a thing? It was not a thing in the original film he's mostly not wearing it. Where does that come from? I really, it sort of feels like the, the the script was written by someone who had maybe seen Jurassic Park like once or twice and was like, oh yeah, he wears a hat. Let's get that
0: in. These are films yeah. that are so reliant on symbols, I think. And it's the same with, you know, Star Wars and any other kind of legacy franchise. And they they hammer these these symbols home over and over again to the point that they lose all meaning. I mean, the whole kind of Chris Pratt holding out his hand to tame the raptors—it's just it—it it just becomes laughable. It's totally, totally laughable halfway through the film when you just think you're not going to control a T-Rex or whatever, you know, by holding out your hand and thinking that like you're, you know, you have this power to speak to dinosaurs. um And there's a moment when Sam Neill does it, and it's like it's just a million times better, but also like still annoying because they've kind of pigeonholed him into this like game of symbols and and signs and it's just yeah it's it's incredibly frustrating yeah I do also I did find it slightly
1: annoying with both I mean perhaps not so much Jeff Goldblum because he's such a a, of a type but with Laura Dern and Sam Neill that it was like almost like these people had been sitting in refrigerators Mm. for the 30 years in between these films um, that they nothing had seemed to have progressed really um, with them and even when they sort of inevitably fall back into each other's arms it feels that like well nothing really happened to really bring you together in that sense but most of all I was annoyed because why is Sam Neil doing a dig How has the field of (laughs) paleontology not moved on in 30 years where dinosaurs are around you?
2: I suppose he's stuck in his ways, but equally. That looked like a pretty big dig with a lot of people, didn't it? That was
1: uh, a little bit difficult to believe, yeah. I I simply do not believe that you can have a world in which stegosauruses are causing traffic accidents, but you still need to go to these fossils (laughs) to find out information about them. Perhaps that's kind of... uh, picking on some small things but I just it was a deeply annoying film to me and it was a deeply cynical cash grab I think 100% really kind of warming up the corpse of something that I hold quite dear but um, let's get some scores on this Um, Caitlin do you want to go first Um, in anticipation enjoyment and in retrospect
0: Sure. So I think, the as I said kind of earlier, the only reason my anticipation for this film was slightly higher than it would have been uh, was to you know see Sam Neill and Laura Dern and Jeff Goldblum. Um, so I'll give this a two for anticipation. I must say I saw the first Jurassic World movie and not the second one because I had such a bad time with the first one. Um, so I'll go two. And then I think I'd maybe have to go two for enjoyment, again, only because of uh, said legacy characters um and yeah probably a one for in retrospect I mean chatting about it now I do just think as you say Layla, this is it's just incredibly cynical and um a totally unnecessary addition to a franchise that very much should have been left alone um, and it's a shame that it wasn't
1: <laughs> Laura what about you
2: yeah, I mean, in, in preparation for this, I did watch the Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom last week, which is terrible, compl- like really compared to the- this one is is more fun. So I'd say having just watched Fallen Kingdom going into this, I think my anticipation was one. I just thought, oh, God, you know, even and, and I imagined that, uh, that the legacy characters would have so little screen time, it wouldn't save it. So I would say one in anticipation. Probably a two, almost borderline a three in enjoyment. I was having a fairly good time while it was happening, but yeah, in retrospect, it probably it probably drops back down to a two again because it really is just a deeply yeah a deeply cynical film, kind of a retread of the original Jurassic Park sequels, but with nothing nothing much new to say, but some some glimmers of charm from the original actors. But uh, yeah, a two in retrospect
1: well i think this might be joining the ranks of morbius and space jam 2 with some historically low scores <laughs> this week um in, ante- in anticipation for me maybe a 2 um enjoyment a 1 i just found the whole thing kind of borderline upsetting <laughs> <laughs> and it's and it's long it's very mm. long for no reason um, very long um and yet in retrospect one please stop doing this please let i mean i think Chris Pratt in the hands of James Gunn is at least like mildly amusing. Um, anything else that he's done, I just think thought was basically appalling. And this to me was like the true nadir. But, you know, put him next to Joel, Jeff Goldblum and you really expose what a charmless meathead of an actor he is. Just oh, absolutely dire. I can't believe I ever liked him in Parks and Recreation. <laughs> um anyway so if you've got thoughts on these films <laughs> um you can uh or, or jurassic world or the franchise in general you can email us at truth and movies or tweet us at lwlies next up swan song
3: selling a little or a lot
1: former hairdresser takes a long walk across town after being tasked to style his former client's hair for her funeral. So this is the wonderful Udo Kier, who has got, I believe, 300 IMDB credits and a very, very memorable face. Um, Caitlin, do you want to start? What did you think of Swan Song?
0: Yeah, so I found this uh, very charming, actually. I I enjoyed the kind of... um, it's, you know, it's a very kind of low budget indie film. Um, there's a lot of sort of quite like slapdash filmmaking going on. I think there's a lot of sort of handheld cameras and uh, it feels very sort of pieced together with, um, you know, small town sets and maybe like some local actors. And there's a lot of things kind of uh, coming together in a way that um, does give it this this very like low budget indie feel, as I say. Um, but, you know, with someone like Udo Kier really like playing up this camp um hairstylist character who's just you know totally wonderful to watch and really carries the film through with this uh you know quite like I guess fairly simple and straightforward story but like there's a lot of heart put into it I think um and I think it it you know it's it's not necessarily a kind of mind-blowingly uh original or or captivating film but I think a lot of what it's doing is actually quite uh you know celebratory and um sort of quite like carefree in a way and I think I just enjoyed it for that sort of yeah just that like freedom to be like yeah we're gonna make this little film about a hairdresser who escapes his retirement home and sets out on this like journey of self-discovery that results in him singing Robin in a gay bar you know like it's just it's such a kind of carefree and 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 quite small movie but um I yeah I found it quite sweet ultimately <laughs>
1: Oh, I found him just absolutely irresistible um, <laughs> as a character. Um, and I, but I loved the kind of way that it almost told a sort of history of what it was to be a gay man in America in many respects. That, you know, he's still recovering in some ways from the loss of um, that he suffered during the AIDS epidemic. And then he was treated so poorly by um, this former client who he's got to um, style on her, her deathbed, I suppose, in her coffin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Which is such a strange thing to me that like <laughs> people it's such an American thing to like get really dolled up in your coffee, <laughs> but yeah. um Laura, what did you think of um udo Kier's performance of this i mean did, was this a very like convincingly charming central character for you
2: yeah i mean i'm not I'm not super familiar with Udo Kier, to be totally honest he to me he is he is that like that person who turns up every now and think, oh, it's you with your amazing face. Like that's
1: (laughs) amazing eyes.
2: Yeah. Just so piercing. I really, I mean, the role I really associate him with is, and I can't remember the name of the character or if the character even is named, but his brief cameo in my own private Idaho um, where he meets, yeah, he meets River Phoenix and uh, Keanu Reeves out on the road. And that's what's really, that, that, that really is, 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 uh, is him to me. Um, I thought the performance, the central performance was gorgeous and it really, yeah it, it kind of carried yeah like as you say caitlin some slightly scattershot filmmaking and yeah we do hit some of the kind of low budget indie sort of i was about to say coming of age but i mean maybe in a way this is a coming of age film, <laughs> in a strange sort of way um sort of self-discovery kind of beats that you get in these kinds of films um but he is very charming and i think really ensures that it doesn't cross over into sort of I don't know, kind of pastiche or sort of over the top, It's it would be very easy for this to become really mawkish, overly sentimental or kind of too mincing or any of those things. I think he really keeps it grounded and it feels very, very real. I'm not sure if the performances around him really, really keep up, mm. but then this really is a kind of, this is a one-man show ultimately. And what I did find really interesting also is the way it does kind of, yeah, it engages with, with queer history like you were just saying and and it kind of it it asks some of the questions or kind of prompts some of the questions of kind of what does it mean to sort of be live as the gay best friend quote unquote and to be kind of used by straight women in a certain sense of kind of not only as as a like service person like literally someone paid to do work for you but also also acting as a kind of an emotional support And yeah, just kind of the interplay between gay men and straight women and what that means in terms of identity. I'm not entirely sure that the film is really that interested in actually getting deep into any of those things. But it does kind of raise some quite interesting ideas. So it it did. uh, I did come away with some things to think about.
1: Yeah, I agree with you that I think it would have been more interesting if it had had a slightly more critical eye in that field, because I think, you know, Taking something as complicated and as complicated a performance as I think Ido Kira is doing because he's playing a lot of like artifice and camp as well as somebody who's really quite heartbroken. But I think to just kind of go with the path of like, oh, well, it's all about forgiveness and it's all about kind of letting everyone off the hook at the end of the day. And that's the way you find peace is like not that interesting a conclu- you know a conclusion I suppose I don't want to kind of spoil what happens at the end but um I did felt it feel it could have a like a tiny little bit more of a of a deep dive into those themes of like well why do you have to show up for people just because they demand it of you maybe there's something more powerful in actually just like rejecting all of these ideas of like that I am at your beck and call and um and that, you know, everybody just needs to be forgiven in a very flat way. Having said that, I thought it was delightful. There is just something about a man dancing with a chandelier on his head to Robin <laughs> that I will really take with me. Um, Caitlin, what did you think of the kind of more existential questions that the film is
0: asking about? Like, what would you do if you had like one final hurrah? Yeah, I, I think for me, I mean, I, to- I totally agree with what, what you've both been saying. And I think it, it, it isn't a very critical film. Um, I I think to me, you know, it's what, what I said earlier about that kind of carefree spirit of the film is what I think is really uh, at the kind of heart of what it's trying to do and kind of maybe trying to give a character like this just the chance to, you know, play out the sort of uh, the last moments of, well, not the last moments of his life, but, you know, like the last, this last kind of journey of forgiveness and um, and and really kind of, you know, rather than rather than telling like maybe a queer story that has to be so kind of you know imbued with sadness and pain and suffering kind of just like lift that all off this character and kind of um, embrace yeah this very sort of celebratory moment and um, kind of you know introduce him to lots of interesting new people and have these figures from his past come back and like create this kind of portrait of a life that Is ultimately you know coming into its own and not being defined by these sorts of you know difficult um, past behaviors of other people so I think I found it quite sort of uplifting in that way and I think that's maybe what it was you know going for in that sense like to not necessarily uh hammer a like critical point home um I thought it was actually interesting that that like you know he's in this kind of small town in Ohio and a lot of the people that he he meets are so like I just thought it was interesting that this town didn't really seem like homophobic. It was it was so nice to see in kind of in both ways. You know, obviously you don't want to like ha- you know see homophobia and you know that that kind of context, but also just to sort of like paint a portrait of you know these kinds of rural towns as not necessarily being this stereotype or having this kind of you know obviously those things do exist, but I think it's such a like uh almost like cliched point at this at this moment uh, in film to really hit home those ideas about like small town prejudice and it was actually just quite nice to like have him hitchhike and have like the driver of the car be like complimenting his rings and like saying you know nice things about him i don't know i just i found that quite uh quite refreshing and it, and it made it you know it, it's a very easy watch like it made it uh you know whether or not that's a good thing or not, like you didn't really have to sort of sit there and kind of stress about the life that this man was about to enter into. It was kind of just like, you know, enjoy enjoy this moment of being celebrated, basically.
2: Yeah, if yeah. anything, he's, you know, he's gently teased about being old, a little bit behind the times with his choice of hair product, but nothing mm, else, mm, which, you know, mm. which is quite a
1: relief. And even then only like lightly teased in a way that, you know, is very is very entertaining and endearing. Mm-hmm. It did seem interesting to me that they cast this role as somebody. I believe it occurs in his like mid 70s. And so he also does seem too young in some ways for what's, you know, to be in a nursing home to do those, uh, to have those things. And then, particularly when they style him in the Farnell act and he's in this wonderful suit with all of his rings and this, you know, this permanent long cigarette, um, that I wonder whether it's kind of. It's, it, I wonder whether it's trying to tell us that sort of like, this is the way this man perceives himself but perhaps what outwardly other people are seeing is somebody that is much more kind of old and frail um, but yeah I, I, I love kind of end of life films I don't know what that says about me um, And I, um, but in some ways it did seem to be that like the film kind of holds quite a conventional idea of like what the end of a good life is mm. Um, still buying into that like oh I didn't have a family I didn't have a house I didn't have all of those things and when he meets up with his friend they kind of are talking about quite old-fashioned ideas of you know what they didn't accomplish. We're still kind of boxing in queer stories with quite heteronormative ideas of like what the happy ending is and I wonder whether you thought that was the case in this.
2: I think particularly a kind of younger generation of of queer people really aren't looking to sort of the The kind of you know nuclear family model as a sort of ideal way to live, and I wonder if to a certain extent you know i suppose to a certain extent you could view this film as a kind of you know I'll be saying goodbye to that slightly older generation who are maybe idealizing that kind of life more, but then that feels very unfair to a kind of older generation of of queer people who. You know, have also lived more radical lives but but yeah, I do think that you know, yeah, you're right, absolutely that that on screen, yeah, queer stories, perhaps to make them palatable to straight audiences do have to kind of portray a kind of nice monogamous relationship, and like probably with children and probably in a nice kind of stable middle class home as as the ideal but of uh of what life should look like, you know um Pat in this film is not exactly running off to join a kind of queer commune or anything whereas maybe maybe in a few
1: years that will be what, what a what a queer character's happy ending will look like, we'll see God, and I hope that Udo Kira is back for that as well um, Yeah, let's get some scores on this, Laura do you want to go first? Um, in Anticipation Enjoyment and in Retrospect
2: Yeah, I think in Anticipation um, I hadn't seen any of um, director and writer Todd Stevens previous films, so I didn't really know what to expect, but the poster is Udo Kier in a fabulous suit. So I thought, great. <laughs> so I think it's a three for me um, in anticipation, probably also a three in enjoyment and in retrospect, to be honest, I thought this was moments being of, of great, like charm and a, a really wonderful central performance um, that doesn't quite, doesn't quite elevate the slightly creaky elements, um, but they're very, very charming overall nonetheless
0: caitlin what about you yeah i'm i'm much the same really um in anticipation yeah udo Kier, also jennifer coolidge who i love um it's uh you know i i and I, I like also a lot of uh what peccadillo pictures do as a distributor so i was curious about this film and um yeah eager to to see what it was about so yeah definitely a, a three in anticipation um and yeah also a three in enjoyment and in retrospect i think um as Laura said, you know, it is it's super charming. Um, I think it just has this kind of like light and free-spirited sort of approach. And sometimes, you know, especially like we've been talking about Jurassic World, like sometimes I do just want to see a really kind of like, you know, thrown together little indie that, you know, is not perfect and not groundbreaking, but is actually trying to do something interesting with a character, even if not, you know, like the narrative is, you know, totally uh, forward thinking necessarily or like uh, totally groundbreaking. I think it's just kind of fun and light and I could, yeah, as you say, I could watch Udo Kier dancing around um, <laughs> you know, to Robin any day of the week. So um yeah, uh, three's across the board from me.
1: Um yeah I think I'm not far off. Uh probably three in anticipation. Again, like some of the images that came out were absolutely delightful. Um maybe four in enjoyment. I I found myself asking some kind of interesting questions about like, who do we assign to be a character actor and who do we assign to be a leading man? Cause this is certainly someone who's got the charisma to be the, the center of a film. And yeah, three in retrospect, I thought it was, it was lovely. I think it was um, not as weighty as it could have been, but you know, I think, He's now in his mid 70s and, and he looks to be in great health. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, I'm hoping for maybe a good, another decade or two of uh, performances for him. And if this gives him a boost, like, I'm all for it. Um, so, if you have any thoughts on Swansong, you can email Truth in Movies at TCO London or tweet us at LW Lies. Next up, Ikiru. Full disclosure, this is my favorite film. So, if you hate it, <laughs> I'm going to edit you out. Now I'm <laughs> Kanji Watanabe, an ageing bureaucrat, is diagnosed with terminal stomach cancer and is compelled to find meaning in his final days. Presented in an radically conceived two-part structure, Ikuro is Kurosawa's look at what it means to be alive. So, Laura, let's start with you. This is generally, I mean, it's not necessarily considered to be Kurosawa's best, but it's certainly considered to be one of his top tier and his most kind of human films, all about what you'd do if you had a few months left to live. Um, what did you feel about um, Ikuru?
2: Yeah, well, I suppose I should start by saying that I am by no means a Kurosawa expert. Uh, I kind of dutifully did Seven Samurai when I was first getting into film as a teenager and um, have basically seen, seen the highlights reel. But uh, this I'd actually never seen before. Um, so this was a brand new one for me. It, it, I knew of it mostly as one of my dad's favourites. Uh, and uh, my dad rarely rewatches films, but... Um, yeah, it's one of his favorites, uh, but also one he has said, I love it so much, but I very rarely watch it because I just can't bear it. <laughs>
1: That's strange. I'm the same. I love it so much, but I very rarely watch this film. I watched it for this podcast maybe the fourth time, but I would still put this in my top 10 ever films.
2: It's it's funny how films, some films like that, you know, you, you don't need to have seen them many times, but they really do kind of live in you. Um, yeah, I so I was really interested to see this. I didn't quite know what to what to expect. I... I found this so interesting. I thought it, I I love, I think the structure is so fascinating. And I think in a way it sounds boring to kind of talk about the structure first, but it's just such a fascinating way to kind of throw the rule book out of the window in terms of storytelling in the sense that, you know, we have this grand voiceover, we meet our protagonist we learn via the voiceover before he does that he's got this terminal stomach cancer i mean it's the very first image of the film isn't it this kind of x-ray and it's this strange kind of abstract kind of glowing shape you think oh what's that strange beautiful thing almost it's like a something in the solar system but of course it's the it's the x-ray um and we see him go through this kind of journey of realization that this is that, that that he doesn't have long left to live and he has this bad relationship with this son and his and the son's wife who he lives with. We have some flashbacks to when his son was a little boy and learning that his wife passed away. But most of the film is taken up by him kind of, he goes on this kind of attempt at a kind of hedonistic night out where he gets drunk and goes to a strip club and but it, he realizes fairly early on this isn't me this isn't how I want to spend my last my last days on earth you know this and uh, and we and we learned that he would like to finally do something at his dead-end job and put forward this proposal to build a new a new park a tiny little park a tiny little playground in the middle of the city and, and this is kind of we're like, okay, we've got to the inciting kind of. This is going to be the 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 thing that's going to carry us through the the second half of the film. And then suddenly we we jump five months later, and he's dead. And of course, you think, what? Mm. Um, this it's such a shock, and it, it 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 works beautifully because then of course, as we we're taken to the wake and his colleagues and family slowly come to the realisation that this man did have a very important, impactful life in the end, even though he spent 30 years you know, behind a desk being called the mummy by his his colleagues. Um, so it's such an unusual and interesting structure. The whole thing reminded me slightly of, and I know it's based on um, or inspired by the Tolstoy novella, uh, The Death of Ivan Ilyich, but it reminded me so much of Dickens as well, and, mm. and by no means a Dickens expert, <laughs> but something about the kind of um, episodic storytelling but also the kind of very scathing view of bureaucracy um, which I think is quite a common theme in in Dickens and the kind of comedic like comedy and tragedy mixing together Um, yeah it really did feel like a sort of updated Dickens story well updated in terms of you know (laughs) updated to the 1950s but in that kind of yeah that post-war Japanese context really
1: fascinating that post war Japanese context is just so gorgeous to me because there is something so mundane about every element of um, of, of his life. Um, I know that like in this era, there was a lot of radiation poison. There was a huge amount of stomach cancer that was happening to these people. There were so many like bombed out little patches like where he eventually builds this playground for for the community. And this like nightmare of bureaucracy that everybody's caught in trying to get absolutely anything done becomes like quite Kafkaesque. And it's almost like we're just moving pieces around the table to kind of maintain a slight sanity of our society. But actually everything is completely cursed. So the idea of like trying to find some meaning to your life within when everything is going against you, because it's impossible to get anything done. It's impossible to have any impact. You've tried to have a family to have that continue going on after you. That has not worked. That has not been fulfilling. You know, hedonism obviously isn't is isn't working for him. And like as a person who's personally constantly in an existential crisis, wondering, worrying about the meaning of it all. like, this just like spoke to every dark thought that I have at 2 a.m. Um, Caitlin, is this, was this your first time watching your career for the
0: podcast? Yes, this was. It's been on my kind of uh, to watch list for uh, a long time, so I was like thrilled to have a chance to to see it. And I mean, my God, what a like masterful piece of filmmaking! Um, I think, yeah, it's the the bureaucracy stuff. I just I just love because it's so uh as you say it's so scathing laura but it's also very funny and i love the way that it's kind of used as this like mirroring device um you know there's early on in the film there's the kind of uh the character who, or the person who gets the run around in all the office departments and is sent from one to the other and um you know no one wants to deal with their request to fix the 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 sewage systems And then as we come to the end of, or near the end of the film, when the same employees are sitting around discussing, you know, uh, uh, Watanabe's life and whether he was responsible for the park or not, you have this same kind of like everyone going around the houses and telling their stories. And it's this really like interesting tie, I think, to, uh, yeah, what these kind of businessmen um, value in life and how they've like, how they've kind of uh, risen to the top by doing nothing. And I think it's such a, it's used so in such a funny way but in such a you know great critique as well and I really felt like Kurosawa was you know really like bashing these guys and the moment when like all the women come in and they're 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 crying and they're mourning his death and you realize the impact that he's had and and that they're the only ones that realize it um it felt like a very special moment I think I really enjoyed the way that that kind of like gender dynamic played out um by the end of the film um but i mean just just generally like it's such a beautifully told story and and some of the kind of uh camera work and cinematography the way that shadows fall on faces or the way that light kind of hits certain angles of you know a cheekbone or a nose or something it's it's so soft and uh kind of subtly portrayed the way that this sort of like lightness and darkness comes through and in the narrative and um just so beautiful to watch um and he's such a his his face is just so expressive his eyes have this like incredible depth to them um and i think he's such a kind of watchable um figure in this in this story of his life he's he's you know he's someone that you as you say like even though you know he's going to die basically at the end you are still kind of so heartbroken to learn of it once you see this the changes that he's undergone and and the way that he's tried to kind of make a difference of his life um and yeah I just think it's uh it's just like expertly handled really um it's it's so warm and funny um but also incredibly sad and and uh and, and interesting in terms of like you know, what it means to like get things done and what it means to make, to affect change in a, in a world that's like hindering you constantly. Um, and, and, you know, kind of incredibly depressing when the other characters, uh, who kind of want to like, you know, take on his legacy and move his, his plans forward, you know, ultimately chicken out or, you know, can't, uh, can't do it. It's, it's I love movies where there's this like kind of cycle uh involved and it's like the cycle of his life and the cycle of change or like the cycle of you know the lack of uh, the lack of change as well which is always the kind of hardest part I think to <laughs> to come to terms with
1: yeah strangely though it's kind of I think in many ways regarded as Kurosawa's like warmest film the there, there is a kind of slight tinge of nihilism to the end in that, like, you know, I think un- a less masterful filmmaker would have had everybody be so inspired and kind of him, you know, create some huge, huge wave of change that kind of went across Japan. But I think there's something so much more significant in him them keeping it small, being just like, oh, well, maybe he inspired a little bit in like one other person. The rest of these people either misinterpreted what he did yeah. or um, will quickly forget it. Um, and even watching it um, all these decades later, knowing, well, you know, that playground won't exist anymore. Um, Mm. You know, things are fleeting, but you can kind of, you can make a a small but positive impact on the world. And uh, yeah, also I think just um, Takashi Shimura, um, to me it's his best performance. I think he was normally more of a supporting kind of character actor. I mean, you know, in a lot of brilliant films from this era, but also... Uh, that moment where he sits on the swing and you you just see this sort of person who, by all accounts, is very ill, but like the power of like self-actualization. And the, he like very subtly just has a movement of his shoulders and a gentle swing that kind of oh, makes me cry every time. <laughs> <laughs> it's
2: such a kind of heavenly image, isn't it? The white glow of the snow. It really is just just pure magic, that image. and You know, no wonder it's become iconic. It's it's gorgeous.
1: Oh, well, I'm very glad, if nothing else, that we made you sit through Jurassic World, but we at least also got you (laughs) to enjoy the beauty of Akiru. So if you've got thoughts on any of these films, email truthandmovies at tcolondon.com or tweet us at LWLies. Next week on a very special, very sexy episode of the podcast, we'll be looking at the film's pleasure, good luck to you, Leo Grand and Emmanuel, and deep diving into portrayals of sex work on film with some special guests. Don't miss it. Thanks very much for tuning in. And if you enjoy the show, please leave us a review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Truth in Movies is hosted by me, Leila Latif, and my guests this week were Laura Venning and Caitlin Quinlan. The podcast is produced by TCO London and edited by Jake Cunningham.